Good morning. It is so good to be back. Always good to be back home. Uh, I feel like I may should stay away longer. It seems like we've like doubled in number. We've gotten some folks back that haven't been with us in a long time. Of course, uh, we had a nice and an awesome, beautiful, uh, I think we call that shindig down here in the south, right? Uh, it's gorgeous. Uh, I know we had a lot of people here who who helped put that on and to make it so. And so I'm thankful for that and opportunity to be together. Uh, last week, I was with Anchorage Church of Christ, and uh, they have a rather large deaf ministry. Uh, and so they had a guy doing the sign language uh, next to me. And I asked him, you know, if he was ready to try and translate this redneck to all the people up there. And he said, actually, I really like it when you guys come up here because you talk slower. (laughs) So I don't have to, like, translate so fast. And I said, well, what about y'all? And he said, well, instead of an A, you just put a Y on it and y'all. So, you know, you learn something new uh, every day. But it is and always is uh, good to be back home. Uh, We're thankful uh, for your presence here this morning. Uh, It is a tremendous blessing uh, to hear you, your voices unite in song, and uh, we were certainly enjoying the Lucases over there. They were singing out, man, what a beautiful thing that one day uh, we will get to do all the time together, and it will be a wonderful, amazing thing. I've never been one uh, that could be called to have a whole lot of sense, and so today we're going to be studying out of Revelation, uh, and I'm going to try to do it justice in a 25-minute window, so I'm already asking for forgiveness uh, as we do this. There is no way in the world uh, that I'm going to be able to give you a complete look at Revelation. There will be a lot of uh, oversimplification, so I ask for forgiveness there. And, of course, anything we talk about on Sunday morning in worship is really to kind of intrigue you to go and study more. Don't take what I have to say uh, as gospel truth unless it's read straight out of the Bible Uh, And I challenge you to go and read any of this for yourself and to come to an understanding and allow God to lead you and guide you into that. And uh, I'm sure if you do that, you'll have plenty to share uh, with the rest of us. And I certainly encourage you to do that. Uh, As we get kind of an intro and kind of setting the scene, I, I think of Matthew 10 and verse 28 where Jesus tells the disciples about fear and what is a healthy level of fear, a healthy respect for who God is. Uh, They lived, uh, and maybe not in information age like we do, where we hear about a lot of death and terrible, negative, awful things, and we can turn on our TV and get as much of it as we want. Uh, But it was a chaotic time where life was fleeting, and uh, there was a lot more uh, concern. We certainly have anxiety and things that we think about and deal with and have fears Uh, Probably a lot different from the first century, some in common. Uh, But he encourages them in Matthew 10, 28 to fear him or fear that which can kill the body and the soul. And I think Revelation drives that point home. Uh, It is an oversimplification, but I've said it a lot. If you want to understand Revelation, God wins. Ultimately, God wins. God calls all things to righteousness and he holds all things accountable Uh, whether through the blood of Jesus, which we hope and pray you've all made that commitment that you are in Jesus, or one day he will come back and set the bullying and the tyrant to the right. 
uh, and he will take on that role to some degree. And I think that's why we're a little uncomfortable with Revelation is because God shows up and says, okay, this is how you want to conduct business. That's how I'll work as well so that you will understand, right? We, we know that people sometimes only understand the big stick. Uh, we want to know Jesus so that we don't have to worry about God's big stick, right? He's, he's using that for us, much like David talks about the shepherd. He's using that to save his sheep, but he will use it to defeat the enemy. And we believe in a God and we take hope in that. And I think that's what John really does in Revelation. Jesus, of course, through John in Revelation, is trying to encourage us that there's a tremendous amount of hope, but there is going to be chaos. But it's the chaos in which the verse that was read earlier, Jesus will overcome. He will take the hardest punch the world has to throw, and he has, and he will use it against them, and he will be triumphant in that. And so as we look, we need to think, and, and the thing that really kind of kicked this thought in, in my mind is the quote from C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia, when they find out that Aslan, or in this case, God is a lion. And uh, you know who said anything about safe? He isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And so human beings throughout history have had to have these two ideas, right? Safety versus liberty. And we make a social disagreement on a lot of that, right? Think of speed limits. There is a speed limit. We, we make the agreement that there will be so much pain and suffering and sometimes death uh, because we're going to put the speed limit at 55. And there are going to be people who honor the rule, the letter of the law, and run 55. There are going to be people who run 15 over. We won't have a show of hands. Uh, but there are those things that we make agreements that liberty is worth a little of being unsafe. When we commit to God, we commit ourselves to putting ourselves on the line a little bit. Because we follow Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He put himself on the line a whole lot. And so that we get to be a living sacrifice. And so I did want to touch on a little bit of interpretation. This is, like I said, this is the oversimplification part. But there are several approaches to Revelation. And I'll just share those uh, very quickly. Uh, one is the non-historical, uh, also known as poetic, spiritual, idealist. It interprets Revelation assuming that the author directs his message to no particular historical period and that the visions reflect no particular historical situation. It's just kind of all up in the air for the hearer to kind of determine what they think. Uh, there is the church historical, continuous historical, world historical. Those are the other names. Prophecy is understood as prediction of the long-range future. To be sure, the messages to the seven churches of chapters 2 and 3 are regarded as addressed to churches of John's own time. But after that, it's kind of all prophecy, right? Uh, then we get to the end historical, also known as futurist, dispensationalist, premillennialist. Uh, they consider the prophecy of Revelation to be a prediction but differs from the preceding view in two important ways. The seven churches of chapters 2 and 3 are no longer real churches in the first century. And the remainder of the book predicts only the events that are happening in the last few years of world history. And so a lot of times you hear, well, we're in the end times. That's kind of this view. And once again, complete oversimplification. If you hold to these, I'm sure you could come up here and be like, 
No, that's not exactly it. I'm admitting that, okay? I'm saying that out the get-go, so don't come and get me, right? Uh, And then number four, which is the one I tend to hold to because it is the safer approach. Uh, I don't think you can ever go wrong with an exegetical, all right? Who... What would this have meant to the first people who heard it? And so that's known as contemporary historical, preterist, historical, historical critical. It is simply the application of historical method to the study of Revelation, attempting to determine the meaning of a text in its original historical context to its original readers before attempting to determine its meaning to us. And so John expects the people to hear it to understand it the first time. They're not going to have to need a bunch of theological debates like we love to have and I love to have, and it's so much fun, but that's not really what they're there for. It's really their response to what John is saying. Hey, it's hard, right? It's difficult. You're going through some things and some stuff too, and God wins. He wants you to have this hope, but he also is telling you things are going to be tough. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult, and we hold on to the Scripture. Take heart, for I've overcome the world. And so if nothing else, get that today. So we start in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, and it sets the tone uh, really for the rest of the book. As I said, uh, Jesus is the overcomer. So we'll start there in Revelation 1. Uh, I promise we'll get to 4, but we won't cover everything in between. And then we'll wrap this thing up together uh, and let you go out and kind of study on your own. So in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 8, we find out that uh, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And really, I don't know if that was his goal, but he gives us an outline of the rest of the book. First of all, remember, I am all-encompassing. There is nothing that is outside of my purview. I know all these things are going on, and I'm keeping tabs, and I'm going to make it right. I am the Alpha and the Omega. There's a reason why that is Greek, right? It's everybody gets that. Everybody uh, educated, and even even some of the non-educated, Greek was fairly well known. And if you didn't know it, you could get it translated because there was somebody who could do that. And so there's this all-encompassing. In verse 12, he talks about the lampstands. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. God's presence, this is what this represents. Later on, he says, hey, if you don't get these things right, I'm going to remove my lampstand, right? In some way, God is always present, right? We know that. But there's this aspect of ownership, And I will remove my ownership. I will remove my association with you. And let me tell you, above all else, that's not what you want. That is not the outcome that you want. And he puts parameters on this, right? He says, these are the things you need to get right, or I'm going to come and do this. I will remove my presence, my acknowledgement of you. In verse 14, we talk about cutting through the pretense. Isn't that refreshing today when somebody cuts through the pretense? When we have a politician, a leader, or someone who says, you know, I know all this other stuff could be added in, but let's cut to the chase. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the image that we get here in verse 14. The hairs of the head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. 
You can say a lot of things. You can say that you do a lot of things, but you're not going to pull the wool over Jesus' eyes. He knows you. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's going on. And I'll be honest with you, there's nobody that I want to know me like Jesus knows me in that. I don't want anybody to know me like he knows me. But I take a lot of hope in the fact that he's the one who knows me like that. He knew all that before he came. And guess what? He still came. He still came to save us while we had nothing to offer him. I think it's interesting that John is the one who sees this. We know he's referenced in the Gospels, the one whom Jesus loved. And yet there is a level of fear and respect that John has for this image of Jesus. There's a level of respect we have for people who see us the way we really are, even at a, even at a surface level, right? I, I love my mama. She knows what's going on with me as soon as I walk in the door. She's my mom. And so I have a healthy respect for her because it seems like she has eyes in the back of her head. Well, think about that in Jesus, and it multiplies. And yet he still wants to have something to do. Notice that even the things, these churches that have things that need to be corrected, he reaches out to them. Think about Corinth. I mean, the Jerry Springer of churches, right? Things are going on that we would just, I'm not going to have anything to do with them. And Paul writes them a letter. Brothers, I love you. Sisters, you got to get this thing right. So that Jesus' presence remains. Verse 16. In his right hand he had held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength as maybe not ever seen before by John, I would say. The seven stars represent the complete church, the universal church. This aspect that he knows what is going on in the churches here in Tennessee in Michigan, in Alaska, in Africa, where my friend went out last night. He knows those things are going on. He knows what we need. He knows how we need to be. Unlike we ourselves even know. And then verse 18, we speak of ultimate authority. The living one, I died. Behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Respect him which can kill the body and the soul. And so we don't have to be overly political when we talk about the Bible because it is political. We don't, we don't have to go over and above the top. God is not someone who says, oh, I'm going to mind my own business in this area. I really don't have anything to say about this area, right? It's political. And we've been sold a bag of lies that go, oh, well, you, you can't ever talk about that from the pulpit. You can't ever talk about those things. And I certainly don't go out of my way to be scandalous and start issues. Trust me. I'm not here to divide anybody. But I don't have to. If I read Scripture and I study Scripture, I seek to what it meant to the original hearers. It is political. It is absolutely political. It is God saying... I am dominant over these things. You do not have an area in which you can go in which I will not seek you out and find the truth and reveal the truth. Jesus has complete authority to provide hope in a hostile world. In chapters 2 and 3, we see what is. And then in chapters 4 through 22, we see what will be. Remember when he talks about the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come. And then he ends with the Almighty, 
Nobody else can claim that title, right? Almighty. Sometimes we carry ourselves that way. We got no business even remotely thinking about that title in connection to us. And certainly as a parent, I've been reminded of that uh, for a long time now. Uh, This is not straightforward chronological order. We know if you've been around here, very little of the Bible. There are parts, but very little of it is chronologically straightforward, right? That's not how they wrote things back then. It was very much thematic. And so we get into that in Revelation chapter 4. And we see 12 times, at least in the book of Revelation, we see 12 times as Jesus, as God, referred to as the one seated on the throne. Tell me that's not political, right? Here's the one who rules it all. This is absolutely political and certainly in the first century, right? Or in the time of this writing, right? Because the Romans believed one sat on the throne. The Jews believed one sat on the throne and they got halfway right. And then here we come with Jesus sits on the throne. He knows what he means and he means what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, that's a pretty bold statement, comes to God but through me. Interesting thing is, is that John is heavily influenced by Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 4 through 28. Uh, And one of the things interesting about human beings is if you outlaw or ban or try to dissuade people from looking at something, what do they do? They go and do it. I think Jesus understands that about people. Hey, don't tell anybody that I did this. Then what do they do? You go tell everybody. Now you tell, hey, go tell everybody, and what do we do? Not tell anybody. Got to keep it to myself. And so even rabbis had tried to dissuade people from reading Ezekiel 1, 4 through 28, because it's scandalous. It's the throne room of God, and nobody goes and sees God and lives. So they're trying to protect people's lives, and yet what did people do? Meditated on Ezekiel 1. That's exactly what they went and did. And so here we have John making references to that. I encourage you to go read that on your own at some point. But we have this political statement. And then he goes on in chapter 4 to unpack how God, how Jesus, is the real McCoy. And how all these others are fake knockoffs. And how we try to present things and human beings, we rally together and we present these symbols and God goes, yeah, I gave you that. I put the meaning to that. And so we start with verse 3, and and this is by no means on purpose, but hey, it works out, right? Verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, the throne in heaven is is the, the context here. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The God who judges has made a covenant with people and creation. It will come when I want it to come. Romans 8, right? The the creation groans within itself. The creation itself even speaks to this is not right. The things that people do and the evil that abounds is not okay. This is not all right. Creation will kill you real quick, right? Alaska is beautiful, but man, there are a lot of things that will straight up kill you if you are not careful. Right, And sometimes it's your own stupidity. I can tell that story later. But there are a ton of things. Oh, it's beautiful and you're stunned and you're overwhelmed, but you better have a respect for what's going on. And God says, I control that. When the time comes, I will use it to my advantage. And we see that in the Old Testament, right? People who were 
idol worshipers who were sinful people who had no idea who God was. And God says, I'll use those people to discipline you. And so the rainbow, the true rainbow is not a knockoff. It has power and symbolism. Verse 4, the thrones. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. We all have an invitation to join God in this wonderful life, in this journey. God could easily rule unilaterally. He could easily cut us out of the equation. And sometimes I'd be really super happy about that. Like there are times where I'm like, why did you ask us what we thought? Why do you give us so much liberty sometimes? Because what do we do with it? We just blow it up. We don't know what to do with it. And yet he invites us to be a part of the process. We all get to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And you know what that means? We're going to mess it up sometimes. But God tells us you can't royally mess it up to the point that I can't redeem it. That I can't bring you back. And in fact, it's in the mess-ups and the failures and the chaos that he really reveals his rule and sovereignty. And without those things, we wouldn't be keyed to them. It's the broken pieces that let the light in so often. And he says, I can use those things. Look at the Old Testament. I mean, how many broken people does he use? And oftentimes, choose. Now look at Jacob. He's not uh, the greatest of all time, right? I mean, that guy just makes decisions like about like how I make them. Just tear, like strategically how I look the best and I get the best outcome. Even though God says, hey, it's your good that I'm about. I'm going to bring about good for you. And I'm like, well, how can I manipulate it to make it even better, right? Like I can outdo God in doing good. Sinai, right? He, he says, you can only come so close or I'll break out and kill you. And then at the end, he says, well, you can come a little closer than that. And like, oh, no, no, we're good. We're good right here. Like, uh, we don't want any closer, Lord. We, we, we just can't stand. We're just overwhelmed. We're scared. We're a little intimidated. No, we're good where we are. In fact, I'd like to take a few steps back if you don't mind. And he invites us into this. And then in verse 5, the thunder and the pills of lightning. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and pills of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches. And what do we see here? We see Sinai. We see Moses. And we see what we talked about a few weeks ago, Pentecost. God has a tremendous way of getting our, our attention by appearing and sharing his certainty and it's terrible. And as we wrap up our time, we look at the sea. The sea represents the chaos monster for much of cultures around the world. Uh, even today, you know, I kind of scoff at these people being scared of water, and yet I can get on a boat and be seasick, right? <laughs> like, I don't really have a whole lot to look my nose down at these people. Even today, we don't know exactly what's at the bottom of the sea, and the things I've seen, I'd rather not see again. I've seen them enough, and they're terrifying, even though they might be this big. Uh, they're enough. Anything moving under the water is enough to hurt myself, right? Running in, in fear and screaming like a little schoolgirl. And so we see the chaos monster, but what? It's smooth as glass and completely under control. The thing that they would have had fears and nightmares over, God has control and even uses it to his will, right? Think of the creation. Think of the flood. Think of the Red Sea. And don't let it be missed on us that Jesus does that in his earthly ministry as well. There's distress, 
and then there's peace. Matthew chapter 8, 23 through 27. Jesus is on the boat. They're all distressed. What's going to happen to us? We're all going to die. You know? And Jesus, peace be still. And then in Matthew chapter 14, they're all out on the boat by themselves. Right? This time they tried it without him. <laughs> and they're out there and the storm blows up and who comes walking on the water? And who pulls Peter out of the chaos? So I want you to think about that as we read Revelation chapter 5. If you will, bear with me. I think it's 14 verses. I didn't want to read it in its entirety. But think of John who's seeing this all over again and experiencing this. In verse 1, Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Think about it looking out on the open water, the storm raging. You never know, not knowing how the outcome will be. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures... Among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out in all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders of the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshipped him. If you continue to read, it gets chaotic. It gets crazy. The storm rages on. But yet we find in Revelation 14, 13... Blessed are those who die in the Lord, for they shall rest from their labors. And then in Revelation 21.1, it says, When the new heavens and the new earth comes, the sea will be no more. And so God shows us His control in the midst of the chaos. I don't know how much of this you got this morning, but I understand that if you've lived long enough, you know about the chaos You know about things in your life and things right now, if you think hard enough, that could be better. That you cry out to the Lord day and night, Lord, make this better. Is there a way that I can make this better? Can I be the hands and feet? We've all experienced chaos. The question is, is like Peter, have we got off the boat? Have we walked towards the Lord? Have we asked His permission to come to Him? Because He's always willing And maybe you've gotten off the boat and you're walking to Jesus and yet you do just as Peter did and you've looked around and you've taken in the chaos and you've allowed it to kind of affect the way you live your life and maybe you feel like you're sinking. 
How does that story end, right? With Jesus reaching down and pulling him up. I'm here to tell you that wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing in life, whether it's the highs of the mountains or the lows of the valleys, Jesus is there and he's overcome both. If there's a way, we're going to sing this song of invitation. That's what our tradition is. That's how we encourage uh, you. Uh, And maybe you're encouraged right where you are and the things that you're struggling with, you can deal with right there. The Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, is with you and dwells you, guides you, and maybe that's something you can do. Or maybe there's something here that you need to make right, you need to make public uh, so that God can redeem that. We believe that He does those things and He's continually in that business. Or maybe just maybe you've not stepped off the boat. Maybe you've not been baptized into Him. Uh, Then if you haven't, if you're not in a relationship with Him, then that verse in Revelation 14, 13 does not apply to you. But the good news is, is that it can. If you'll simply step out, let us know. We'd love nothing more than to baptize you into the blood of Jesus today. If there's some way that we can serve you and be the hands of feet, we look forward to that opportunity as we stand and sing.